Welcome to the Grace City Church Podcast, where we believe that Jesus died to reconcile us to God, to others, and to make us reconcilers. We're so glad you're here, and we pray that wherever you're watching, God is doing transforming work in you through this message. My name is Richard Brown. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, Grace City Church, and it's a, it's a pleasure and a blessing um, to, to be your pastor, or one of your pastors. Um, how many of you have read that story before? How many is kind of up on that story, and you've read it, and you go, wow, what's up, you know, with that? Um, you know, that story, as it, as it develops, it gives one of the complications, I might say, of reading Old Testament narrative. Um, you know, the Old Testament narrative, one thing is, contextually, it's just such a different culture. You know, also in the sense that we as believers and we have kind of, you know, living out the fulfillment of the redemptive narrative through Christ, that, that we have the Holy Spirit residing in us. <clears throat> in the Old Testament, it, it seems that they had the Holy Spirit that visited them, and we have the Holy Spirit that took up um, a house in our life, if you will. Another difficulty or a challenge, I might say, of reading the Old Testament in narrative is that it's just hard to know sometimes when you evaluate what's going on in the story, was this a good thing or a bad thing? I mean, sometimes you read what like a man like Abraham would do when you would go, man, that was messed up. Sometimes he will do something, you go, that just don't seem right. That seems like a bad idea. <clears throat> Sometimes you'll read a, a, another story and you go, I'm not really sure. And then sometimes you go, that, that was good. That was a good thing. It's just difficult sometimes as we read through Old Testament narrative to, to really understand. So what we really have to do as we're reading through narrative is go, you know, what are, some, what are some universal principles that we can find what they went through that also speaks to our life too? And that's what we're going to do with Abraham. We're going to look at Abraham's life. We're going to we're going to kind of interpret some of the things that we did. We're going to, he did, and the decisions that they made, and we're just going to say, what are some what are some principles that we can extract from this that really speak to who we are? Also, let me go. Let me backtrack in Genesis a little bit. We're in we're in Genesis chapter twelve, and so I'm going to catch you up. I'm going to go took about three minutes in the Genesis one through eleven to catch you up through twelve. So in the first three chapters of Genesis, what you see is God creating the heavens and the earth, and God said it's good. He created man and woman, and they, it was good, and he had relationship with him. That It literally says that, that, that they could hear God walking in the garden. There was this intimacy that was taking place there. They knew one another. They knew each other. They knew God. There was a harmony. But their desire for autonomy, their desire to do things their own way broke that fellowship between them and God and really broke the fellowship with one another. So you had chaos and broken, <clears throat> broken relationship with God, broken relationship with one another. And then that brokenness, that sin begins to express itself up really throughout Scripture. So, so then you've got Adam and Eve. They're broken with God. They're broken with one another. One of the first things you see is Cain and Abel, where Cain kills his brother. 
Throughout those first 11 chapters, you will see phrases like, and that sin was abounding, and wickedness was abounding. And then you get to Noah, where God really starts over by creating an ark for, for, for Noah, so that really he wipes out humanity and starts over with Noah. Then Noah begins to have kids, and they have kids, and you had the chaos that and the rebellion and the autonomy that just continued. Then you find that they built an, they built the, an altar that where they were trying to get to God, and then God cast them all out and confused all the languages in the Tower of Babel. That was in chapter 11. And then we come to chapter 12. And it seems that in chapter 12, God says, I'm going to, rest- I'm going to start this redemptive process of, of restoring mankind to myself, and I'm going to use Abraham's family to initiate it. And that's where we find ourselves in the book of uh, in the book of Genesis in chapter twelve, and so God calls Abraham. I'm gonna pull out pull up a map for you. So here you have a map, and this is Abraham's journey, and the journey starts in just in the few verses before in the end of chapter eleven. It says Abraham and his family lived in Ur. And then it says, Abraham's dad, Terah, takes Abraham, if you'll look up the top there, it'll say Haran, that Abraham's dad takes Abraham and Abraham and his, and his nephew Lot, and they go up to Haran, where? That, that Abraham's dad dies. And then the Abraham's calling then takes place. And I'm going to kind of reduce Abraham's calling a little bit from what we talked about last week or when Plunk was here. Uh, when was teaching on the very first uh, verses of chapter 12. And, and God said, Abraham. They were, they, so they began to go down from Haran. They began to go south, and they landed in Shechem. And the, while they were in Shechem, God says, this is the land I'm going to give you. He said, I, and he said three fundamental things. He says, I'm going to make your name great. You're gonna be a, I'm going to bless you. And bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And he said, and you're going to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Here's what he said. He said, said, this land you're in, he said, you're going to make an impact. Your name will be great. Things will happen because of you. I'm building something and, and, and things will happen. You'll make impact. Then he says, and I'm going to bless you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to give you good stuff. And then he says, and ain't nobody going to mess with you. I'm going to bless those who bless you, and I'm going to curse those who curse you. He said, I'm going to build this hedge of protection around you, and I'm on your side, and I'm against anybody who's against you. And then he gives him this missional call, and he said, you will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. At this time, Abraham might not have realized, but he's talking about really the ultimate expression of blessing all the families in the earth through Christ. He wasn't just talking about the Jewish nation. He was talking about us. This passage, this promise, this blessing, this missional call was directed toward you and I. That through Abraham's lineage or his seed that will find us beautiful expression in Christ, we find blessing and salvation. We, found this, we find this protection and, 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 and the impact. We are experiencing really this promise that Abraham was given. And we're also called to be missional. We're also called to look out and to go and to also be a blessing and bring betterment to other people's lives. 
It says this in it, it says this in Matthew 28 where Jesus says, go and make disciples. We see it again in Acts 1.8 where, the, where the Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the utmost parts of the earth. So that's kind of where we find ourselves. So Abraham goes, he leaves Haran, his dad dies up there, he goes to Shechem. God says, hey, this is the land I'm going to give you. Your name's going to be great. I'm going to bless you, curse those who, don't, who, don't, who, who, who are not on your side. And then he says, then you're going to be a blessing to all the nations. And then he goes south from Shechem, a little bit southeast to the town of Bethel, which is, the, is, is literally the Hebrew term means the house of God. And he sets up a house, he pitches a tent, and he makes an altar, and he begins to worship. He kind of finds his home. He begins to worship. He begins to praise God. He begins to align his heart and his life around God. And then something happens. If you'll notice in this trek, he's going to leave, Cain, he's going to leave Shechem. He's going to leave Bethel, and he's going to start traveling toward Egypt to Zoan. You see the little arrows right there. That's where the story picks up today. The story picks up with him leaving Bethel house of God where he was worshiping and traveling to Egypt. And then we're going to ask that question, was that smart? Should he have done that? One of the things you'll see throughout Scripture, and it talks about how God tests us. And then, uh, here's the difficulty with that term. There's a passage in, in, um, in uh, 1 Peter chapter 1. It's talking about the testing from God, how it's like testing gold, and that, and, and that gold is purified. And, and really what it's saying is, is that how, how when you heat up gold and you put stress on gold, it takes the elements that doesn't belong to the pure gold out. I don't know if you ever watched any videos, but I've I got down a little rabbit trail one time of videos of people taking necklaces and rings and earrings and dropping them in all this acid, trying to take all the impurities out of gold. And they would put this acid on it and that acid, and you'd see this green smoke bubble up. It was pretty fascinating. But, but as I watched it, I thought, oh, that's kind of what God does to us sometimes. With the desire to purify us, with the desire to do good things in our life, he puts hardship and acid, if you will, in our life to burn off those things that he doesn't like. And that's really what a test is. I'll use the word test, but sometimes I think we misunderstand test. We might think of tests like what happens in school. You know, you're sitting down and they hand you a paper, make sure that you've done everything that you're supposed to and learned what you were supposed to. The teacher hands it to you, and sometimes you think the teacher's not on your side. Maybe they're trying to weed out the class and get a smaller class. It just doesn't seem like they're on your team, and you, they give you the test, you take the test, and then you fail. You fail the test, it communicates something about who you are, and what I'm saying is that's not the kind of test God puts us through. That we don't really fail, he's just purifying us. And I say that, and the reason I think that's important is because some of you are sitting here today, and you go, man, I've, this walk with God, I've failed. You know, I've made some mistakes, I've made some decisions that's hurt me, and I feel like a failure. And I, I, I've literally, in the last few weeks, talked with someone who's, who was paralyzed around some of the failings that they've had because they see God as the teacher who claims their desk and try to kind of wants them to fail. And I go, no, no, that's not what God does. And he, you know, he loves you, and he's purifying you, and he, he, he wants good things from you. He's not the schoolmaster who's banging the desk. He's the loving father that wants to create something beautiful in your life. 
So you get to this passage, and what you're going to find out is God is about to put Abraham through a test. He does it in two ways. You'll see that in the previous passage. You'll see one of them in the previous passage and one of them this. And first off, that when Abraham gets to the promised land, when he gets to Shechem and Bethel, you know who's there? Anybody know? There's Canaanites there. It's people. It's brutal people. It's the people that came through the, through the lineage of Noah that literally one of Noah's son, who because of sexual impropriety toward Noah was cursed, and it's through that lineage where the Canaanites came from, and they're a brutal, warlike people. So, Noah, so Abraham lands in this area where there's Canaanites. Not only were there Canaanites, we're going to see in the very first verse, it says there was a severe famine in the land. So now Abraham is faced with two extraordinarily significant tests in his life. And the question becomes, what will he do? You know, how will he handle this test? Will he stay there in Bethel, where the house where he's built an altar and he's worshiping God? Or is he going to run? Is, he going, is, he, is Abraham going to look to the light which is going to be southwest of Egypt to go, there's a light over there. I think they got some food. Is he going to take off that way? Or is he going to stay and look for God and say, God, what are you teaching me in this moment right here? There's a story of, of one of the king, King George, who was the king of England and during the time of World War II. Um, everything I've ever read about him said he was like a legit believer. Really knew Jesus. If you read some stories about Dunkirk and his prayer around Dunkirk, you'll find that he really was a legit believer. Well, anyway, during World War II, England was really panicking about being invaded by the Germans. And so their National Guard, they didn't call them the National Guard, but essentially their National Guard there was just kind of inept. They literally said that their National Guard existed of older men carrying around broom handles. And so the people would look out, you know, they see what's happening in Germany, how powerful the German army is, and that they're only 80 or 90 miles across the English Channel. They're real close, and the people are looking out. The people who are protecting their city are old guys, probably my age, carrying a broom handle around, right? And that just didn't give them a lot of confidence, you know? So, so the, 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 the king of England began to pray, and he, be, he would get on the radio, and he would talk to people, and he would, he would do a beautiful job of spiritualizing. And one particular radio broadcast that he did, he read a poem. And I'm going to read you just an excerpt of that poem. It's from Louise Haskins, and here's what it says. It said, And I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, Give me light that I might tread safely into the unknown. And he replied, Go into the darkness and put your hands into the hands of God. That shall be better than light and safer than a, than a known way. So I went forth, and finding the hand of God, trod gladly into the night, and he led me toward the hills and the breaking of day into the lone east. You know, what he was saying is, is you feel vulnerable and you don't really feel safe right now. You look at these old guys with broom handles. Don't look for light and how that we can be stronger than the Germans. Lift up and find the hand of God. Because fundamentally, that's where your protection is. That's where your care is. That's where the light is. That's where you will be led properly 
with. It's so easy, though, in the midst of struggles, in the, in the midst of trials, in the midst really of just decisions and navigating your own life, when you go, i got decisions to make. I've got to think. I have opportunities. It's very difficult in those times of opportunities and decisions to just lift your hand up and look for God and to be patient in that. Our tendencies... The same tendency that Abraham had was looked aware that there is betterment and advancement. That's kind of the American way, isn't it? If I've got an opportunity that I can put myself in a better situation than I am in now, if I can get a raise or I can change jobs or I can move about or I can continue to elevate my status, it's just almost like a no-brainer. As Americans, we're just supposed to do it. We're just supposed to move We're always looking for betterment, always looking for better ground. We're always looking for more. And here's what I'm saying is more's not necessarily bad either. You know, I've had everything. I have been really poor in my life. And I've had more money than I thought, man, that's a lot of money I got right now. I've been it all over the place, and neither one of them is necessarily bad or good. Sometimes God does put us in a, a sense of prosperity. But here's the key, and here's what Abraham didn't do. He lost his call. He lost his missional understanding. He turned his back on his call to bless the families of the earth on the land that God had given him. It's so easy to lose that. Here's your challenge. First one of the challenges is we always lead with mission. Mission being this, God, how how are you going to use me to make a difference in this world How are you going to use my presence? How are you going to elevate my name? How are you going to bless me in this? And how are you going to use me to make a difference in the world that you've given me? And I lead with that, and everything else is a subsidiary of that, or it's an expression of that, or it's a byproduct of that, or it's kind of the steam of that. But fundamentally, I'm a person who's asking the question, God, how do I navigate my life that best honors you and builds your kingdom? And that's not what Abraham did. Abraham turned his back on his calling. He turned his back on his mission. He looked in a different way. He headed to Egypt, not the land that he was called, not the people he was called to. He headed away from there, and you're going to find chaos settling his life. Um, You know, we kind of understand that principle. If I were to stand up here before you and I would go, hey, y'all, I'm about to move because I got me a job, and I'm going to be making some bank. And I said, I'm not having to worry about any bills anymore. I'm not having to worry about my kids' college education or getting them cars or paying my water bill. Those days are over for me, y'all. I'm going to be making some money. Y'all would go, hmm, okay. You might be glad. That's exciting. But something in your mind would twinge because you, hopefully you go, you know, Richard, you're about mission. I get money, but you're about mission. I think that's legitimate. I, I, I think it is a little odd that in Christianity of America, very few people will make decisions that undermine their betterment. It's always a decision to elevate their betterment. Not that a betterment is wrong. Don't hear me saying that at all. Not that blessing is wrong. Not that money is wrong. But you would expect that sometimes people would make a decision that would put them in a worse state because it would put them in a better position to proclaim God's goodness. So Abraham, he turns his back. He walks the other way. And he heads to Egypt. Egypt. 
Let's watch what happened. Verse 10, it says, Now there was a famine in the land, and Abraham went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. Um, the word that they used to live there, it literally means to sojourn embedded in that word. It means that he really didn't plan to stay there long. He was just going and coming back. Does this remind you of the book of Ruth where Elimelech, Elimelech was living in Bethel in, of Judah, the house of bread, house of God, and there was a famine in the land, and he leaves Beth, uh, Judah, Bethel of Judah to go to Moab to live, and kind of chaos takes place in his life. He dies, his kids dies, and then Ruth and Naomi come back and say, I'm bitter. It's kind of the same picture, that there was a famine in the land, and he went there for a little while um, to find food. And it says, as he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they'll kill me, but will let you live. And then he tells her, say that you're my sister, so that I'll be treated well for the sake of my life and will be spared because of you. Um, wow. You know, you read that. A couple of things strikes me about that. So they get there, and Abraham, and actually, if you look in verse chapter 15, you'll see that she is, is actually his half-sister. So it's just a half-lie. Half-lie is a whole, true, a whole lie. Though. You know what I mean? You can't, there's no such thing as a half-lie, are they? But, uh, so it's kind of a half-lie, which is a full lie. And, uh, but he did it out of fear, didn't he? He just didn't want to die. You know, he leaves the place of worship out of fear. He goes to Egypt, and this, this fear begins to kind of snowball. That when you, when you begin making moves out of fear, when you begin making moves because you really don't trust God to protect you, the next move of fear is oftentimes worse, and, the, and, and it's magnified. So now he makes a move out of fear to go there, and then he essentially gives his wife away to the Pharaoh because he's afraid that she's gonna, he's going to get killed. You know, when I read that, I mean, it's, it, it, has to, um, it has to startle us all um, that this individual was lifted up as kind of our father, and he could do this. Um, I want to read a quote from me from John Hanna talking about the patriarch of the Bible, he's a professor at Dallas Seminary, he says, there's, there's not a patriarch in the Bible without serious personality flaws. From Abraham to Jacob to his sons, this demonstrates that personality defects are not an obstacle to the promise of God. God uses broken people. Self-esteem is not as important as a God-focused life. If your life focused on yourself or on the Lord, when we act out of fear, it often leads to other sins such as lying and endangering others. Doing things God's way may appear to be dangerous, but it never is in retrospect. Um, I don't know how much of you kind of keep up with what's kind of happening in American Christianity, but just recently I have. And one thing that has startled me is how many people, ministers, leaders, people of fame, are just kind of a, are a, abandoning their faith. Um, I won't go through all the names, but there's so many that you find that they're in all of these uh, 
shameful living, shameful activities. Donna told me the other day there was a lady podcaster who for so long had been pretty orthodox and has kind of abandoned biblical orthodoxy. You know, I won't, I won't talk about any names, but there's just so many people who are just making a, making a mess and kind of a mockery and all these scandals that have been taking place over the last few years. And I'm going to be honest with you, sometimes it's a gut punch to me. I go, man, what, what's going to happen to Christianity in our country? We look so bad right now. We see these leaders who are lifted up and who have this fame and their feet are cut out from under them and they just tumble in their own podcast and people are talking about them. And literally, it brings fear in me. And then I read this and I just, you know, God kind of taught me as I was even studying through this that even in the midst of a man like Abraham or what you see in our world today, that, that God, even though Abraham did what he did, God still accomplished sending his son to die on the cross. That it's not necessarily, that, that sometimes that God accomplishes his agenda even in spite of who we are. And I just thought to myself, I don't, I don't, I don't need to have the breath knocked out from me because God accomplishes what he wants to accomplish. That he's powerful enough to overcome even people who really do horrible things. And I will say that in your life also. Some of you may very well be sitting here and feel like you've made decisions in your life that's kind of undermined you. And you go, I don't know what kind of use I would be. I've made these mistakes. I've done this. I've thought like this. This has happened in my life. That it's, you, you might feel crippled. And I would say there's nothing can be further from the truth because God uses broken people to accomplish amazing things. You have to put that thought aside. Because really, those thoughts of you believing yourself to be crippled, it really speaks more about what you think about God than really what, it, what you think about yourself. You're really accusing God of something. You're accusing God of not having the power or not having the grace or not having the love to do amazingly restorative things in your life. You're really talking bad about God. You look at Abraham's life, and he's stumbling, and he's falling, and he's getting up. And you see that throughout the Scriptures of people stumbling and falling and getting up. And what you find is this gracious, loving, powerful hand of God and constantly restoring. Go to verse 14. So Abraham gives his wife over. She essentially ends up in Pharaoh's world. And um, in verse 14, it says, And when Abraham came to the Egyptians, the Egyptians saw that Sarah was a very beautiful woman. And then Pharaoh's officials saw her. They praised her to Pharaoh when she was taken into his palace. He said, He, he meaning the Pharaoh, treated Abram well for her sake. And Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. That's odd, isn't it? Um, um, so Abraham, he gives his wife over, and then he starts acquiring all of this wealth. He acquires all these sheep and servants and camels, and it just grows and it grows. It looks as though that Pharaoh may have even given them to him, but maybe he just acquired and was successful there at the same time. But here's what you're going to find out. 
I'm not positive about this. This is, again, a part of this whole Old Testament narrative and story. But it looks to me like as you go to the next chapters and as you keep on going through the life of Abraham that he was entangled by all this. That he was entangled by this wealth that he got in, in this way. The next chapter, you will see him and Lot kind of fighting around this wealth. It can be entangling, meaning this. <clears throat> when we make decisions that's not based in our calling or our mission or God's promises of blessings, we do it for our own betterment. Even the things that we get can be entangling. It can wind us up. It's like wrapping vines around us. That's why we have to be so careful in our life and prayerful. God, what are you calling me to do, God? What calling do you have in my life? How are you calling me to be a blessing, Lord? How are you protecting me? How are, what's going on? Just understanding and reaching for God's hand in those times of darkness. Because if you head the wrong way, even the things that looks like a blessing can be an entanglement. So Abraham, he got all this stuff seemed like it entangled him in verse 17. It says, But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram, and he says, What have you done to me, he said? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why, didn't you say, why did you say she was your sister? So that I took her to be my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way and, and his wife and everything he had. Most scholars will look at this and say that there is a time of preparation for um, when, they would, when a Pharaoh would get a harem, and there would be a time of preparation. He had thousands, and they, m- most all scholars would say that the Pharaoh never really touched her at this time, that, that there was a protection, a hedge of protection around her. But what happens is, is because of Abraham's, really his, his obstinate, his autonomy going his own way, he even, he even brought a cursing to people that really fundamentally he was called to bless. That when we make moves out of our own desire for betterment or fame or whatever, we even make those around us vulnerable to, to harm and heartache, and that's what happened in his life. He went there, and Pharaoh's whole household was under almost like a curse and a sickness. And Pharaoh finally said, Abram, you brought cursing on me. Y'all need to get, take your wife and get out of here. Y'all just leave because he brought a cursing to him. It's also I kind of it's interesting to me how that even, even, in the, even in the midst of Abraham being defiant, doing his own deal, living autonomously, going to Egypt, being a liar, putting his wife in a vulnerable spot, putting the, the, the Egyptians in a vulnerable spot, how God just continued to protect him. You know, God told Abraham, I'll bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And even, even the Pharaoh was in the state of bringing harm to Abraham's lineage because of Sarai in his harem, and God protected her from that. And, I've, and I thought that how, that how that God let discipline come his way but stopped it when it was, when it was time to move on. Meaning this, this might, illustration might make a little sense. I, I got a bunch of my kids here today. There have been times in their life that whether it be in school or whatever, they've just kind of gotten in trouble. 
They've gotten in trouble, not from us, but from somebody else, maybe, you know, wherever it may be. And Donna and I are kind of standing there watching this take place and realizing that they need, they need discipline around this and even allowing the system, whether it be the school or whatever, to exact some discipline. But we're always standing there going, but it might, I, might, I might tell you when enough's enough. Meaning that they're still my kids and you need to be careful. I think that's how God treated Abraham. He allowed some discipline to come his way, some testing to come his way, some purification to come his way. But he know the, 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 the reality that Abraham was God's children, Sarah was his, he never lost sight of that, and he protected them just like he wanted to. It just it's one of those things, y'all, that that God is forever protecting and caring for you and mindful of you in your in your mistakes, in your, in your times of autonomy, he never stops caring. He never stops looking after you. God does not go away. He's always there for you and with a posture of redemption. That's who our God is. He's the God of redemption. He brought Abraham up to bring redemption to the earth. I'm going to bring um, the band up now. What's some points? What are some principles here of the life of Abraham that we need to just kind of hone into? Now, I would say the first principle is this, is that we can never, ever forget that we have a calling in our life, that God has gifted us. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He's called us to be a blessing. He's called us to make impact. And we always, 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 we let that lead our life, that God is a God of blessing, that God is a God of gifts, God is a God of caring, and God is a God that builds a a hedge of protection around you, that he blesses those who blesses and he curses those who curses, that that principle really never leads our life. In other words, you can walk out this door with this confidence of going, the God, the creator of the universe, he is firmly on my side. He's firmly, and I'm firmly in his camp. And I can rest in that. I can rest in that always. I can rest in that during trials. I can rest in that when I am under any kind of a persecution. I can rest in that always. The, you know, the, the beauty of some of the songs that we've sang and will sing, it was a culture. It was the black church who was resting in God's hands of saying, I've got this persecution and chaos around me and this hatred around me, but I'm leaning into God and uh, because He is the one that delivers me. He's the one that gives me hope. Read these, really pay attention to the words of the songs that we're about to sing. It's a people that go, man, I'm, being, I'm under stress, I'm under persecution, I'm under hatred, I'm under violence, but I'm leaning into God's hand. I know that he blesses me, and I don't care what my world says. I know I'm cared for. We're also, just as a a beautiful way of recognizing our union with Christ and the blessings that we have through him, we're having communion today. Let this be a special communion for you, where that you recognize this union and this relationship that you have with Christ that he invites you to the table. 
As a believer in Christ, as someone has put your trust in him, you are invited to eat with him. It's beautiful because we have two elements there that we find in the book of Matthew and the book of of Corinthians. It talks about Jesus' blood that was shed for us, that offers a covering of our sin. It says that his body, this bread being the body that was bruised and beaten for us, so ours didn't have to, the punishment that we deserved he took, that we might have eternal life, that we might be declared as righteous. And this meal celebrating that reality is going to happen. And so we're going to sing. I'm going to pray in a second. Whenever the Lord leads, you can come and take communion. Let's pray together. Dear God, thank you for your mercy and thank you for your blessing and thank you for your goodness, Lord. You're just good. In the midst of us not being so good all the time, Lord, you still are. You never quit loving and you never quit protecting. You never quit caring. Dear God, I pray that we would be people who always lean into you, Lord, who always raise our hand up looking for yours. And, Lord, we find comfort and we find peace. Uh, Dear God, thank you for your mercy and your grace, and it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grace City Church Podcast. Whether this is your first time with us or you find the Lord moving you to engage differently or just learn more about who we are, we encourage you to find us at our website at www.thegracecity.com to explore all of the ways that you can give, connect, and engage. Thank you again for being with us. Now go live as image bearers of the King.